Welcome. Uh, if this is your first time here, we're really glad that you're here. Um, if this is your first time here or you're not on the uh, newsletter list, we send out a newsletter once a, a week just to let you uh, know what's going on. Stop by the welcome table, which is in the back corner. Afterwards, uh, Catherine or I or somebody will be there to help connect with you. Um, and I am really excited about next Monday. Um, she, uh, Shana mentioned this passively, but you want to invite your friends to something that's non-churchy to get them involved? or what? This is the perfect type of thing, right? If you have fresh, uh, friends that are not... Uh, church-going people, not Christians, this is a great thing, because we're not going to, you know, bash them over the head like we do on Sunday morning, right? I'm, that's a joke. Hopefully you don't feel bashed um, this morning. So uh, she already prayed, so I'm just going to jump right into the Word this morning. Um, in case uh, you haven't been here the last few weeks, we've started a new uh, sermon series. Scott's preached a couple, and uh, Mark Skillens preached last week. We're going through the book of Acts. And we're going through it uh, chapter by chapter, trying to do one chapter a week, which I'm sure Mark will tell you is nearly impossible to actually say what you want one chapter in about like a half hour or so. Um, so this is the fourth week, so I'm going to be looking into Acts chapter 4. And uh, at first I was like, oh, there's not that much that you can. And then as I got more into it and more into it, I realized, wow, there's a lot going on here. Um, so we'll pretty much read the whole thing in bits and pieces, and just bear with me as we look at some highlights. Also bear with me if I do some weird things with my eye. I got an eye infection this week, so much that my eye, I couldn't see out of my right eye for part of the week, and I'm still trying to, uh, it's, it's getting better, but I'm still having a, a little bit of uh, some weirdness with it. So anyway, uh, Acts 4, starting at verse 1, um, as we get into uh, Acts, um, if you have a Bible, you can open it. We'll try to shoot it up there, too. Um, just a context is in, in Acts 3, um, Mark spoke about it last week. Basically, what, what happened was um, Jesus has already gone back, and, and the uh, apostles have already received the Holy Spirit and, and been commissioned. And uh, Peter and John uh, healed this guy who had been crippled for, for 40 years. And that was kind of an amazing thing, right? And then, uh, and then they start preaching the good news for all the people that were around them, like, this is Jesus, and, you know. And so this is kind of a continuation of, of what happens uh, after that. So it says, verse 1, As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, when I see that word annoyed, um, I think about, uh, I, think, I, think, I think sort of differently than maybe what was actually going on here. I think about um, what I do to my daughter. So one of the things that I've, uh, we've been doing um, the last couple of weeks is they've, uh, she's gone to, had to go to a couple of parties and we pick up one of her friends. And uh, a couple weeks ago, I was playing U2 in the car while we picked her up, and I started singing along with it. And Grace was, oh, oh, stop, stop. And then I said to her friend, Jessica, do you want me to sing? She's like, yeah, yeah. So we did that yesterday, too. We picked up Jessica. And the first thing I said was, do you want me to sing again, Jessica? And she's like, yeah, do it. And Grace was uh, 
flabbergasted and um, let me know that she was extremely annoyed by it. <laughs> but I think that the annoyance that these guys were feeling was a little bit different. I think that the priests and the, uh, the Sadducees and, and the leaders were saying kind of to themselves, well, I thought we already dealt with this a few months ago when we crucified their leader. What are they doing? Let's quash this before it gets or causes any more problems for us. I think they were even a bit fearful of this message because they had seen how popular Jesus was at one point in his life, not at the end, but they were afraid of this messing with their power influence over the people. Now they had, the, the chief priests and scribes and elders of the church or of the, of the temple had dealt with false messiahs before, right? Like men claiming to be the son of God that were not actually before. But after they were put to death or put in prison, the uprising or movement that the, they, were, they caused usually would fall apart because there was no more charismatic leader to lead them. You know, the shepherd was struck and the sheep scattered. But this was something new. I think they were thinking, Jesus' disciples are claiming that he was resurrected after we put him to death. And they're not just not scattered. They're performing miracles publicly. And they're bold and speaking with some sort of authority. So what did they do? Verse 3. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. It's probably closer to 10,000 if you include women and children. Verse 5, on the next day, their their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family, the well-to-do, the leaders of the temple. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? I'm thinking, Peter's thinking, oh, well, I'm glad you asked. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, and by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. So last week I mentioned that Mark uh, Skillen, one of our uh, council members, uh, spoke. And uh, if you haven't gotten a chance to listen to it, this is one of the, for me, one of my favorite verses that we've had, our favorite sermons that we've had in the last couple of years. I've been thinking about it all week. So one of the things that he talked about was about the fact that the focus of the miraculous, the healing that happened in verse, uh, in chapter 3, the focus is not actually on the healing itself, but what it points to, or rather, who it points to. The focus is not on the healing, but should be on the healer. 
The miracle of the healing, let's call it the, the, the lesser miracle, if you will, leads to the revelation or to the disclosure that Jesus was and is the Son of God, that he was dead but is alive now and is compassionate, powerful, and active in the world today by his Spirit. And so the miracles that, that we see in Acts and, and, and a lot in Acts and in other places in the New Testament the miracles, uh, the healings, and other things like that can be or, or maybe should be the bridge to recognize God and to place our faith in the healer as healer, but also as Savior, as Redeemer, as forgiver of our sins, which maybe is the greater miracle, and to put faith in him as in the Lord of our lives, namely Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So you've got the healing, the miraculous, which are great. But they're really kind of a sign. Maybe that's why they're called signs and wonders, right? They're signs pointing to Jesus. I shared a, a few months ago about some of the health issues that I have. And my prayer for those, these months that I've been praying that God would, would heal me is God, heal me, but do it in a way that people have to know that it's you so that people would know that you heal and that you save and that you're powerful and that you're loving and that you're compassionate. Um, if it's not about you, then, I mean, I still want to be healed, but really, first of all, I'm not going to be healed unless it's Jesus. So um, I'm trying to, trying to keep that in mind. Okay. So verse 11, Peter goes on about Jesus. Peter just wants to talk about Jesus. You'll notice throughout here. He says, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. We sang that this morning. You know, Jesus is the cornerstone. Um, now, this is one of these verses that you really can't ignore because there's a, there's a history to it and, and a real, even a relevance today. Now, I'm not real handy. I'm not a construction guy. I can, you know, drill a hole. I can hammer a nail. I can, you know. I did some plumbing uh, a couple of years ago, and a plumber came in a couple of days ago, and he's like, who did this? I was like, he's like, well, yeah, it's, it'll work. <laughs> but um, I'm not a builder. I'm not a mason. Um, but uh, when he's talking about a cornerstone, in case you're unfamiliar with a cornerstone, is back in that time, and even, even still today, if, if you're, Mason is the guys who work with um, bricks, but more, more with stones, right? Um, Israel wasn't known for making buildings in, in wood or in Palestine. There's a lot of rocks around there. So most of the houses, most of the buildings, even today, uh, are built with bricks or, bricks or, or uh, rocks back then, stones, you know? And... Um, Again, I don't know all the gist of it, but I do know that, you know, when you look into building a, uh, a building out of stones, you need to start with the cornerstone, which is the foundation. And the cornerstone has to be angled just right so the walls go upright, and uh, it has to fit perfectly. I mean, it's the first thing that you set down. It's basically the foundation of the house. So if it's not strong enough or if it doesn't fit right, then it's no good, and anything that you put on top of it eventually is going to crumble. So it's the foundation. 
So Peter says, Jesus is the foundation. Because we find this prophetic verse actually three times in the Old Testament, most clearly in the Psalms where Peter and, and uh, Jesus actually quote it. In Psalm 118, it says, the stone, builders, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So during his earthly ministry, which was before Acts, Jesus quotes this referring to himself, essentially saying, this was written about our times. I and my kingdom are the cornerstone. So Peter here is referring back to the metaphor. The metaphor and the foretelling of the Old Testament where it was promising that a Messiah, the perfect stone, was to come and be the foundation of faith in the one true God. But that stone is discarded by the, elder, by the builders, which, who are the religious elites. And I, I wonder, like, why did they discard this stone? What, what, what was he going there? Well, I, mean, I think that this stone wasn't what they were looking for. It didn't fit in their way of doing things. It wasn't the foundation that they were looking to build on. But just when the builders thought the stone was completely gone and discarded, it surprises them by resurrecting and taking its right place, becoming the cornerstone, becoming the foundation. And we know that the cornerstone is Jesus. Jesus is the foundation or the cornerstone of the Christian faith. He is the cornerstone or foundation of, of the church. And even maybe more, he has become the cornerstone. And, and this challenges me because it also, he has become the cornerstone of our personal faith walk. And so I have to ask, and we have to ask ourselves, maybe regularly, is Jesus Christ of Nazareth? the foundation of my life? If he isn't the cornerstone of your life, what is? What keeps you going? What, what keeps you motivated in life? Why do you uh, have the career that you have? Why are you friends with the people that you have? Why do you vote the way you do? I'm not going to get into that, but do you go into the voting booth thinking, well, I like this guy or I like this woman or whatever? It should be the cornerstone of everything that we think of and everything that we go back to. Jesus is the cornerstone, the foundation of everything. A lot of us, yeah, you know, get off and, and, and our cornerstone is, is like, how do people feel about me? What, what do people think? Or, or maybe uh, my significant other, like, that's my cornerstone. They make me feel like I have purpose. They make me feel loved. But nothing can be a strong and perfect cornerstone like Jesus, Right? I mean, a lot of what I'm saying this morning is stuff that you've heard, but, but I think it's good to remind us, and, you know, besides, we have to stick with Acts 4. If Jesus asks you, am I the cornerstone of your life, maybe you're all good. Maybe, you know, things are great, and you, you can say, yeah, well, good, stay that way. But maybe you might realize, as I do often, that, well, he certainly was when I started out walking with him, um, or he used to be. But sometimes we get sidetracked, right? 
by life and, and issues and problems and, and good things. And sometimes we might say, well, yeah, he's the cornerstone, but only part of my life. Now, this is expanding the metaphor, so I hope that doesn't bother me. Maybe we have numerous houses, and Jesus is the cornerstone of, of, one our, of one of our houses. But then we have these other houses that Jesus isn't the cornerstone, right? Extra little buildings, you know? So Jesus is the cornerstone of, of, of my my church life or of uh, certain things. But, you know, when it comes to my career, yeah, you know, I kind of prayed a little bit, but I just took this job because I know that's what, you know, that's what's going to work for me or whatever. That's going to fall and tumble eventually because it's not built on the cornerstone. That's why it's important to regularly ask the Holy Spirit to search us, search my heart and know me, God, Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. That's quoting from the Psalms. To search us and show us if there's any evil or idols in our lives that have crept in. And to get in with friends and community that you can see your blind spots, those that can see your blind spots. Because even when we think that we're all right and our cornerstone is firm and it's our foundation, we need others to be able to speak into our lives and say, yeah, you're not seeing this. Not to judge you, but to point out where you may be missing something. You know? Maybe your, your uh, plumbing isn't working right because you haven't built it right. Or I had a friend of mine a couple of weeks ago who said, uh, I hear what you're saying, but is that really what you mean? Where are you at? It's hard sometimes to do that, but, you know, we need those people in our lives. And, we, and we've got the Holy Spirit, too, to lead us into all truth. Okay, enough of that rabbit trail. Verse 12. There is salvation in no one else, Peter says, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is one of those really hard verses, or not. This is certainly not a popular verse in our uh, current context in, in culture right now. It's not in style with contemporary thought that there's only one way to God, really. Saying this publicly would make you worthy of getting canceled. Right? Really. It seems really closed-minded, you guys. You guys are so closed-minded. It seems so exclusive. But here's the kicker. The Bible and Jesus make exclusive claims. We have to, as believers in Jesus, reject the popular idea of our times that all roads, all religious roads, lead to the same end. Christian faith in the story of Jesus teaches us that this worldview cannot be true. It's not true. If you are a believer in Jesus and you read the Bible, you cannot read the Bible and tell me, well, there's a bunch of different ways. The claims that are made are exclusive. It's black and white. You might not like it, but if you believe that the Bible is God's truth, there is only one way to have relationship with him. 
And by the way, these are not just Peter's words. But in John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. A lot of people stop there, but you know what he says right after that. No one comes to the Father God except through me. It's exclusive. So maybe this is exclusivism. Maybe Christianity and the, follow, the way that we follow is exclusive if you're a follower of Jesus. Maybe. But I don't think really. You know why? Because it's for everyone. It is for everyone. The gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, that he died for our sins. He didn't just die for my sins or Pastor Scott's sins or if you're you know, on the council or, or you've been going to church for 40 years. or you know, It's for everyone. Jesus died for everyone. It's not his will that any should perish. It's a message with an invitation, a gift that simply needs to be received. And I'll talk a little bit more about this in, in a bit, but it is for everyone. So is it exclusive? Not really. I don't even think it's closed-minded because it's open to everyone, right? Verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. How could these guys be talking like this? And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. I'm a, a believer in higher ed. Uh, a lot of you guys just graduated. Congratulations after four years or two years or whatever. Um, congratulations. Um, I did the four-year thing, and then, then uh, later on in my life, I went to seminary for three years, which was a great experience for me. Um, but I found when I was in seminary, and maybe you did too, Mark, I know that you went, I found that it was easy to get bogged down um, in you know, historical analysis, textual criticism, even some weird theology that sometimes, even though I was learning to be a better pastor or... Uh, learning about the Bible more, sometimes I would just get bogged down in all the nitty-gritty stuff that I felt like I found later to be useful, but at the time, I was just, you know, I was like, what about Jesus, you know? Um, and you, you can get so bogged down that if you're not feeding your soul, your faith can become dry and stale there. I saw that happen with some of my friends, and I was worried about it with myself. I think it's what... That's why some people refer to it not as seminaries, but cemetery. Um, actually, I had some friends who actually thought that was the name of it. They're like, why do they call it cemetery? <laughs> wow, just because Jesus died, but he came from Rosa rose from the dead. <laughs> but Peter and the disciples who followed Jesus were grounded in theology because they spent three years and because they had been with Jesus, the author and founder of the faith. They had been with the great teacher and rabbi who opened and explained the Old Testament scriptures to them. They had been with the teacher, the leader. But they had also been with Jesus. Beyond being a teacher or even a counselor, 
They were with one who was passionate, kind, bold, deep, patient, loving, faithful and true, an authentic friend who they lived with and was loved by deeply. They spent time with Jesus. They were in relationship with him. They didn't just experience Jesus' teaching, but they experienced his life. So many would say, you know, it's really not a good idea, or you cannot base truth on experience. And I get that, right? Like, if you're talking about uh, theology, you know, or or Christianity, if you don't get some basic grounding in, in doctrine, you can get a little bit weird. Just some basics. But we, as believers, cannot get around the idea that our faith, our faith is experiential. It is experiential. We are called, like the disciples of the early church, to be with Jesus, to be part of his ongoing story, to experience him now, to experience his presence in the world today. God is complex, right? To think about God and all the complexity of all, you know, I think about, I, I read things about science and they're just, they're, they're just touching the surface of how big the universe is or how small things are and quantum physics and all these things. And, and, and Jesus is like, yeah, there, there's more, trust me. And, and we'll never, it's, he's so complex. There's so, his, his ways are higher than our ways are. His thoughts are beyond our thoughts. It's, he's so complex. It's overwhelming to think of the complexity of God because it's, it's beyond what we could ever even begin to wrap our minds around. But you know what? His story or his gospel, which means good news, is simple. He brings it down. You don't need to have it all figured out in order to be with him spiritually. I've been walking with Jesus for about 28 years, and I still feel like, man, I don't know anything. You know? There is so much more, and it's kind of exciting. I feel dumb sometimes, like how much I know about, don't know about God or how much I haven't learned. But then I think, wow, there's so much more to learn. Fun, if you like to learn. And hopefully you like to learn about Jesus, because he's pretty cool. Um, I've been walking with him for 28 years, and like I said, I don't really... I'm not there. So I want to skip a few verses and skip down to verse 19. So the, Peter's still talking to and explaining his, his ways to uh, um, the uh, scribes and elders and leaders of the, of the temple. And he says to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. Verse 20. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They're just telling the story, what they've seen and heard. That's their only apologetic, their only evangelism. This is what Jesus said, and this is what he did, and this is what he's doing. To know God and to share your faith with others, you don't need to know Hebrew or Greek. You don't need a college class in church history. And if you have faith in Jesus' life and death and resurrection to forgive and free us from sin, then you've got the Holy Spirit. And you have a Christian community. 
to help you grow and encourage you in the faith. If you haven't made that step to place your faith in Jesus yet, remember, Jesus is offering this as a gift. You don't have to really do anything except accept it. To accept this invitation to have faith, follow him, have your sins forgiven, and walk in a victorious life with more hope, peace, love, purpose. It's free. Like I said before, you don't need to have any secret knowledge, right? And you don't need to be all cleaned up and proper. Man, I was, man, I was a hot mess before, when, before I finally surrendered my life to Jesus. And I probably still am a hot mess now, but I was more of a hot mess back then. It's, it's free for you. And if you want to talk about this a little bit more, I'll be around to talk about this with you. Um, okay, so let's come in for a landing with verse 23 through 31. So I'm going to read this whole part. The title that the uh, translators has put is The Believers Pray for Boldness. Verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, why did the Gentiles rage and why and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers, who are the rulers now, were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Who's the anointed? Just keep reading. Verse 27, for truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of Jesus, your holy servant. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, which is interesting, because Pastor Scott talked the first week about how it wasn't necessarily shaken, but that it, there was a sound of wood. This time it actually says it was shaken. Just a fun note. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And so we have this example and encouragement that if we pray for boldness and the Holy Spirit, God will give it to us. And you know what else? If we pray for healings, signs and wonders, he will do it. Just be prepared if he does and when he does to answer how it happened. Not with big, long lengthy statements, but bring it back to Jesus. Jesus is the, the point. Jesus of Nazareth is the point of all that Peter's saying. How often has he said his own name in this? I, Peter. No. It's not about me. 
So let me end with kind of a cool tidbit. When people talk about the book of Acts and what it's about, you know, what's the main theme? Usually the answer, we say something like, well, it's, it's about the establishment or the beginning of the, the early church. And I can buy that. Yeah, that makes sense. A lot of people refer to it as the Acts of the Apostles. But I think as I read this more closely, especially the last couple of weeks, and I think about Mark's message last week, about how the Acts of the Apostles were secondary to the meaning of the Acts, I realize it's really all pointing to Jesus Christ of Nazareth. He and his Acts are the greatest miracle. Just in this small chapter, Acts chapter 4, I notice that the name of Jesus is used eight times just in this one chapter because Peter is like, it's not about me. It's not even about you. I mean, you crucified him, but it's about him and his ways and his thoughts and his actions. It's all about Jesus. And the book of Acts, does it talk about Jesus? It uses his name 71 times. More then the Gospels use his name. They're talking about Jesus, but they, they say his name in Acts because they're explaining, you know, what Jesus did as the Holy Spirit. You know, a lot of us, you know, I, I don't know if this is you, but, you know, Jesus said when he was crucified and resurrected, he said to the apostles, you know, it's actually good that I'm going to go and be with my Father in heaven. It's better for you because I'm going to send my Holy Spirit. And that's how we know Jesus, by his Spirit, because Jesus isn't walking around as a man right here. But he is with us. He's in our midst as we gather together, and he's with us in our hearts and, and with us when we're alone with him. It's all about Jesus. So, sure, this is a book about the early church. But more than anything else, this is a book about Jesus of Nazareth. Amen? Amen.